You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to SEPCON 95, the first annual conference of the Separation of School and State Alliance, held November 10, 11, and 12, 1995 in Arlington, Virginia. This presentation is copyrighted by the Separation Alliance, and permission is hereby granted if you would like to make gift copies for friends. This is tape two of a two-part series, a debate on the tax-funded education voucher. In favor of the voucher are Joseph Bast and David Harmer. Against the voucher are Douglas Dewey and Candace Allen. The moderator is Rick Henderson. A way of looking at this whole problem, which seems to me to, to possibly ease the tensions between them, and my question really is, does it, in fact, ease the tensions between them? If we move from the status quo to a voucher system, that move will not be made in a political vacuum. And ways in which it could happen seem to me to be divisible into two scenarios. Scenario one, vouchers represent the libertarian extreme of acceptable alternatives. So that you, you, it's bipolar, status quo, and vouchers. So if we, if we move to vouchers under that system, all the, there'll be pressure to move back the other way, but no pressure coming from the other side of vouchers, as it were. Alternative two, we have a three-pronged system. There's status quo, there's vouchers, and there's complete separation. And if we, if we then make the same move, that is from status quo to vouchers, behold what a different situation we're in, because now there is pressure coming from further to the libertarian side, and which will at least countervail the pressure back towards the status quo. And vouchers would no longer be perceived as an extreme, it would be perceived as a moderate position, um, and the, the practical conclusion from this, it seems to me, is that maybe what we want to do is move to vouchers, but at the same time sustain and, and, and foment a strong separate, radical separation movement. What do you think? Absolutely. I agree. <laughs> so do I. I think that's exactly what we want to achieve. No comment. <laughs> I'll save my time. <laughs> That would be fine, David, except that you can actually preclude separation by slamming the door permanently on the opportunity for privatization once uh, the government controls all schools and all parents. Uh, the debate is, is complete with high theory and principle and hypotheses, and it's dying for hard evidence. I understand there is some hard evidence in America in the Wisconsin um, voucher system that pioneered by Polly Williams, the Democrat. Uh, a voucher system for poor uh, families only. I understand that they're queuing up to get in, that the state has limited the numbers uh, uh, that uh, qualify to go into those private schools. But if this is happening, this is giving experience uh, to uh, families of private schools, another world out there. Uh, that will uh, could alter the, uh, the wishes of the electorate, the you know, polit political uh, balance of power, I would thought. Let me quickly correct that, um, Dr. West. They're not queuing up. The authorization initially was for 1,000 spots. Only about 700 participated because they excluded religious schools. Um, and the um, real model that is working is the privately funded program in the same city, which did have uh, well over 1,500 people on their waiting list since their inception. And they serve, and they serve now close to 5,000 all in private money. Actually, Doug, it's wrong. There is a queue for the public program. The reason that fewer students participated than were allowed by the legislation is that fewer schools were able to participate. There were fewer slots. The question from E.G. West was whether or not there was a queue of parents wanting to get into the program, and there definitely is. That program has demonstrated that a voucher program can be very popular, that it benefits low-income children, that it makes a difference in their test score results, and also that it puts into place some additional things. Milwaukee now has public school choice, something that the unions had opposed over and over again uh, over the years. So it does move in the direction of further deregulation and further privatization. 
comment about the unions, having been a former faculty representative leader. Um, the reason why they don't oppose them anymore, schools of choice, is because they realize it doesn't make any difference. Uh, quick comment or question comment about the uh, food stamps. Interesting example, but I don't think a very good one, Doug, for your case. Is it Doug? Oh, Joe. I'm sorry. Joe, I'm sorry. Uh, the question I have is what do you think? Uh, let's, let's assume there's no regulation now of food. Other example notwithstanding, what do you think would happen to government regulation of grocery stores if all shoppers used food stamps? <laughs> I don't think it's an interesting thing to speculate on. Um, no, I'm, I'm serious. Let, let me explain. What if you had a system? This is interesting to speculate on. What if you had a system where 88% of all the people in the United States relied on a government cafeteria to provide their food, and only 12% were getting it through competitive stores? What if you made vouchers available to the 88% who right now had no choice at all? I think most of the cafeterias would go out of business just like that. I think you'd see the development of a thriving private sector of restaurants. And that's, that's the relevant uh, mental experiment. Uh, in a conversation with the superintendent of the largest Christian school uh, in the Central Valley in California, uh, he brought up a point that I had not thought about before. They have a very uh, good working relationship with their board. The board was divided down the middle on whether if Prop 174 had passed in California, whether they would accept voucher money or not. And what Tim Wilkins, the superintendent, saw happening, and he politically took no position, uh, at least publicly, in regards to the voucher issue, but what he saw happening was this wonderful, harmonious board of directors that had developed this wonderful school model would be split down the middle. There would be fighting for at least several years deciding, debating whether government money would be accepted or whether it wouldn't, and the result would probably be the splitting of a very successful school. So if government vouchers throw a wrench, so to speak, into the working gears of the government schools, why would we be any further ahead throwing a similar wrench into the already established private system rather than developing, spending our energies on developing a community support base financially private vouchers for uh, the education of our children. If your goal is to maintain harmony, accepting the status quo is the surest way to do it. Proposition 174 compelled no individual, no parent, no student, and no school to accept vouchers. Um, any school with a concern about them was free not to accept them. The fact that some schools couldn't decide whether or not to do so doesn't uh, doesn't seem to me to speak to a deficiency in the concept, but rather to a division of opinion there that might perhaps best be addressed by the establishment of two schools rather than one. In general, just a comment about <clears throat> about this all happening in a vacuum. It's not. We're not here because suddenly we had a new idea. We're here because there's homeschooling parents out there that the educational establishment's getting scared about. They're t the, the, just the talk of vouchers scares folks. Steve Phillips just said the other night that his third main plank on his plan for president is give schools back to parents. There's such things as uh, edu educational alternatives and the Edison projects out there. In Colorado, just last week, a piece of legislation intended to kill comp compulsory attendance is proposed. And 
cyberspace learning is occurring, cyberspace communications about homeschooling, about vouchers, etc. This is all happening now, and public, the public is gradually losing faith in schools. It's not happening in a vacuum. The, you've mentioned about the uh, Wisconsin uh, example. Uh, this is a, ex all the examples we have so far of public vouchers are limited to people who are in private and public schooling going into private schools. But a general tax-funded voucher system would inevitably involve moving people who are currently in the completely in the private system onto the entitlement. We'd increase the number of people entitled. We know from our experience with higher education that when the government uh, funding, you know, there will be standards set of some sort. And as someone who spent 20 years in the NEA, once they lose on the voucher system, their shift will immediately go towards standardize, putting the standards in on anybody who accepts the vouchers. Plan such, B. such as how many days you're in school, how many hours, teacher accreditation, the curriculum, all those things. And the, uh, the support now that, that the general community has against imposing standards on private schools I think will erode once those private schools are getting a check from the taxpayer. The, the citizens will stand and say, yeah, there should be standards. And we will see an erosion of the alternative. And I'd like the, the comments up from both sides. I'll make a very quick comment. Marshall told me about some social workers in the Fresno Valley who uh, were very eager to do their job well and actually went out and sought poor laborers and encouraged them to go on to welfare. Uh, because they'd be materially better off. They made the case. Um, now, <clears throat> I don't think many people would agree that that's a good thing, uh, but that's what voucher proponents are proposing that we do with those who are currently not on school welfare. Well, quick comment. I needed to tell you about what my dad said last week when I asked him about this question. Now, my dad just had an 11th grade education, and I said, Dad, what would happen if voucher or tax credits were put into place? Do you see any problems? Do you see anything happening? He said, my gosh, if my tax dollars being given to more kids, those in private schools too, and my taxes are going to go up, I better darn well see results. <laughs> the person who asked the question uh, used the phrase that it would increase, a voucher plan would increase the number of people entitled, and of course that's wrong. They're already entitled. It might increase the number of people who apply for getting their money back from the government, money that they've already put in. But let's not forget whose money it is. It's our money. It's not the government's money. It's easy to design a voucher plan that keeps spending neutral or even reduces spending. The public schools are so grossly inefficient that you simply scale back by 10%, typically, how much the public schools are spending, and you free up enough money to cover tuition in private schools. And as competition sets in, you can expect costs to go down and quality to go up dramatically. So there'd be very little pressure for uh, uh, increased spending on the program. To honor Rick's request that I keep responses brief, I'd like to invite those of you who want a more detailed discussion of Proposition 174 to uh, look at the book. A couple of quick responses, though. To oppose vouchers because they might lead to more government regulation is profoundly, profoundly dangerous if you're ignoring the fact that the pressure for regulation of private and homeschooling is already considerable absent vouchers. Proposition 174 actually wrote into the California Constitution protections of home and private schools that do not now exist. Home and private schools are far more vulnerable now without vouchers because Proposition 174 failed than they would be had it passed into law and given constitutional protection to the independence and autonomy of those schools. I have good news for everybody, by the way, because we have so many interested persons wanting to ask questions and nobody else can stand up. I'm sorry for cutting off the, the limit now. But nonetheless, we're going to extend the question and answer period for approximately 15 minutes longer than we had expected earlier. Because we have box lunches, 
they are in the back of the room. If you promise to be on your best behavior and go pick them up, take them back to your uh, tables here and eat them quietly, you may do so. And John Taylor Gatto has let us. We're not going to intrude on his time at all, so we'll have the, the get up and stretch break after this is over. But we still have, we have 15 additional minutes. <laughs> Next questioner, please. Um, the topic uh, of great importance is regulation, as we've all noted today. I think um, what we have to remember is that it's a political thing also. Depending upon who is in political power, be it the state legislatures, and I come from Maryland, which is heavily Democratic, I mean 140 to 40 in the delegate house, or whatever uh, group is um, preponderant in Washington at the time. Because if you have a political structure that is against regulation, against having these departments, such as perhaps currently the Republicans in Congress are trying to do, then you have a much easier road to hoe. But if you're, if the, uh, so I'm saying that the general electorate will have to elect people who are of that way of thinking, because if they don't, they'll uh, put in people who want to emphasize re regulation again and propound them even further and to expand the teachers union and the Department of Education even further. So I think we have to educate the general electorate to do with politically before we can even get into really, well, maybe not before, but along with trying to make changes in the school system. Well, uh, let me speak for the, the other team. People are too stupid to understand that, and they're too lazy. They won't lobby to prevent those regulations, and the historical trend has always been toward government dependency and more regulations, so there's nothing we can do. So I'm sorry, it's a good suggestion, but it will never work. The, the problem is, and I brought this up, but I had to rush through the point, and, and I think it's an important point to say right now, that the government monopoly obviously is made up of special interests organized that, are, that dominate the unorganized interests of all of us. Vouchers appear to be a way of organizing those unorganized interests out there. That means that the folks on the compliant end, the ones I was talking about earlier, they'll have a voice, supposedly, except that then vouchers have to be implemented politically, and there's the catch-22. Uh, just addressed to, to the whole panel here. Uh, first of all, in Baltimore City, where I come from, uh, the v mere mention of vouchers strikes fear in the hearts of the uh, teaching establishment, the public government teaching establishment. In my mind, it seems to me that they at least, that particular group hasn't figured out yet how well they can control people using vouchers because it scares the heck out of them. They understand what the aim truly is. So in my mind, my question is, what's wrong with using it there? At the same time, in Baltimore City, the word privatization has been used by hiring EAI, Educational Alternatives, and it's not privatization at all. These are just government subcontractors. That's all they are. And they've managed at the same time to uh, dirty up the name of privatization. Recently, I tried running for office, and I cleared away from using the word privatization for schools because I didn't want to have to explain what it really was. Now, uh, I want to, my, my real question is, what is wrong, uh, Joe, uh, with keeping reminding those people who think a voucher might work that it is not the ultimate aim and really understanding what the uh, real pitfalls are in the long run, what's wrong with that? And by the same token, what is wrong in a particular situation like Baltimore City with actually going out and trying to use the voucher uh, threat to advance our cause? Well, I would not want to determine my course of action based on what my enemy doesn't like. I just want to do what's right, and I would do that. Um, 
The second thing is, I do think there are people within the establishment that are getting wise to this, and Marshall's uncovered some quotes from Marshall Smith and some others who are perfectly ready to go to Plan B. Once vouchers are foisted on them, once they see it as an inevitability, then they will move to capitalize uh, on their advantage, on their newfound advantage. But there's no point in being discomfited and having uh, without, you know, gratuitously. So that's why I think they put up with the fuss at this point. Actually, I guess the question was addressed to me. I think once the teachers, once a voucher plan is in place, the teacher unions lose so many, much of their resources and their power that they're not in a position anymore to try to control or manipulate the system. If you follow trucking deregulation, you know that the Teamsters took an enormous hit when competition was introduced into a previously carteled industry. So the same thing would happen, that the teacher unions become a much less potent political force once vouchers are in place. Their ability to commandeer or take over the system diminishes rapidly. I agree with what you said about edu uh, you know, the false privatization. I think that that's, that's contracting out. That's a, that's a baby step where a much bigger step is necessary and should be in place. And finally, your third question, what's wrong with pointing out the shortcomings of vouchers? I think debate is healthy. I think the, uh, the, the principled stand for total separation should be out there and should be made. I don't think energy should be invested, though, in trying to tear down uh, coalition efforts to get vouchers passed. I mean, these things are really close all around the country. There are very, uh, you know, we're very close to getting the first generation of vouchers in place. Get the voucher plans in place and then say, let's go further. You know, let's means test the voucher. I mean, that's the easiest way to phase out a voucher program. Only low-income people qualify for the voucher. Make it part of the welfare programs. Vouchers imply that things will be different, but if you go to Tennessee or if you go to Colorado or California, schools look pretty much the same. There's a false notion that there's competition out there, and what will happen is, is that there's going to be even less competition. The little bit of competition, now I say very little, between public schools or government schools and private schools, it's very little competition. It's even going to be reduced because most private schools, if resisting regulations, if they say, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to go by the state standards, I'm not going to buy into that standard stuff. And if they decide not to, they're going to fold because at the margin, when I'm deciding whether or not, even if it's a Christian school, and I'm deciding whether or not to send my kid to this Christian school or that Christian school, and I get a voucher and I've got five kids and I can save $12,000, and I say, well, one's a Christian school over the other, believe me, at the margin, I'm going to choose the one with the vouchers. Let me just make one more little comment about the unions and, and how, whether this will hurt them or help them. Uh, the, one of the first things that I predict will happen under a voucher program, broad scale, is that the Catholic schools will unionize. The NEA and the AFT are already slated to merge. Uh, I was present at a conference of Catholic school superintendents in Washington not long ago. Andrew Greeley spoke, uh, pounded his fist on the podium and said, if we don't unionize, then we should close all the schools down. And there was a standing ovation. Uh, they're very liberal, very left of center, most Catholic educators, and would choose the pensions and the salaries uh, to join the blob in a heartbeat. Within 12 months, I predict. All of the uh, pro-voucher and pro-school choice spokespersons that I've seen or heard quoted in the media when they're accused of wanting to destroy the public school system will fall all over themselves to reassure that they uh, actually want to save and strengthen the public schools through, through the vouchers. Uh, much as the Republicans are falling all over them, themselves to um, let us know they want to save and, and strengthen Medicare. Um, understanding that you're not responsible for the statements of others or the selection of spokespersons for a cause by the media, is it still not reasonable that these statements repeated over and over in the general media give uh, those of us who favor true separation of school and state some, some pause? Well, I think people like Bill Bennett 
and others uh, believe that under a voucher program there would be a, a very significant contraction in the public sector and a very significant increase in the private sector. Um, beyond that, nobody can predict just what the mix eventually is going to be unless we somehow pass a national law that prohibits any municipality from allowing any public funds to go into a school. So uh, strategically, it doesn't help the voucher movement for Bennett to go around saying it's going to destroy public schools. And as a result, uh, that argument doesn't appear on the lips of voucher advocates. And I guess that should give you pause uh, because they're out there kind of reinforcing the public schools while making the argument for vouchers. That's unfortunate, but strategically, I guess it, it reflects the fact that it's still a potent argument in this debate that you're going to destroy the public schools. And total separation advocates should perhaps learn a lesson from that and say, whoa, the public isn't ready to embrace the complete destruction of public schools. This gives me an opportunity to respond to a point Candace made earlier, which was that as public school performance continues deteriorating, the public will grow weary of increasing tax sponsorship of public schools. All the evidence we have points to the contrary conclusion. The worse public schools do, the more people seem to think we need to give them more money. That's a very powerful argument. I think you need to look at, uh, again, not uh, intentions or uh, purported motivations or uh, superficial strategy, but at the end result of the actions that these advocates are advocating. Do they increase or contract the scope of parental authority and responsibility? Do they increase or contract the realm of authority of the state? Two comments, one to, to you, David, uh, responding to what you just said. You're right. Do they decrease or contract parental authority in the school? Those few folks that choose right now to pay taxes plus pay money to send their kids to school, when they quit doing that, they are abdicating further their responsibility. They're just, it's one more link, one more step towards everyone being on vouchers. And in, in comment to what you said about, uh, what the question about schools, people are making the assumption that just because you give vouchers, the public schools will change. A public school is a public school. And having had experience in a charter school last year, I will tell you that just because you empower teachers that are already in a system that, that have no accountability really because their jobs are still there, that doesn't change anything. I think some of us are less concerned about whether or not this destroys public schools and more concerned about the possible destruction of what, what there is of the private school movement. And this question is for David. Uh, Proposition 174, very specifically, you're talking about this being a move towards privatization. How do you justify that statement with the fact that Prop 174 required voucher-receiving schools to abide by the national standards of Goals 2000 and to require a test lined up with Goals 2000? when already private schools have no testing and curriculum requirements in California. As far as I can see, this is not a move towards privatization. It's drastically moving the other direction. How do you justify it? Well, you're asking a question about a specific initiative uh, as emblematic of a, a general concept. How people choose to draft their voucher legislation will vary from place to place. And proposition, can I finish? Proposition 174 isn't the only way to do it. If you object to that language, I'm sure there is language that would be acceptable. Proposition 174 did not do anything to endorse uh, Goals 2000, and it didn't require uh, the imposition of testing on private schools. What it did do was authorize uh, the state superintendent of public instruction to 
uh, to require that some kind of academic testing reflecting national comparisons so you determine where kids are in relation to each other's on academic standards be done. But it very carefully um, also provided that private schools themselves would be enabled to choose the particular tests or administrators of tests that they wanted to apply. But the there was nothing in 174 authorizing the state bureaucracy to tell any school what test they had to apply or what particular standards they but had the to measure themselves against. But the test had to be tied to national standards. That wording is in there. Uh, tests tied to the national standards limits you to a very, very narrow range of tests specifically tied to Goals 2000. There's no getting around that. Well, and we're not talking the old Iowa test from the 1960s. Yeah, in, in, in drafting that, we had, uh, I mean, if we, we probably ought to have a debate on the drafting of 174 at yeah, another time yeah, because actually, I think we, yeah, it's we don't too want specific. To have, uh, yeah. on the drafting of 174. Yeah. I'd like to go to the next question, please. Thanks very much. I'm uh, very disappointed uh, that, as his first point, Joe took the stance that vouchers are not a new entitlement. Parents are already paying for uh, education with other people's money. Uh, and that the whole focus of this conversation uh, today has been on somehow persuading parents that vouchers is a benefit to them in moving toward better education and that it will affect the rest of us. Those of us who do not have children in school are the people who ought to be the focus of the separation of school and state debate. I would remind Joe that taking of my money or anybody else's money without my permission is theft and I don't intend to allow it to continue regardless of how Joe intends to distribute it. <laughs> I agree. I agree and I applaud what you're saying. I mean, that's the goal. Uh, yeah. Hey, hey, if we had a magic wand, or if you have one, bring it up to the table here. I mean, we're not going to end it today. That's not going to be the first step. The first step is going to be to get rid of the producer's monopoly, because that's the vulnerability in the public school system. The next step is going to be to phase out the financial entitlement. Vouchers are the way to do that. I think tax credits are a good idea, and I think you can, you can design a voucher plan that's essentially they overlap, now, and, how, and I've how done that. People through government is like feeding sparrows through horses. <laughs> <laughs> what you get is vastly diminishing quantity, and while it may be a benefit to some, it generally stinks. <laughs> you don't want, I don't want the government to touch the money in the first place, any part of the process. I'm just going to quickly say that, that Joe had mentioned earlier that he felt that there was a double injustice, that people had to pay their taxes and then pay again to go to private school. Um, the injustice is not that some have to pay out of their pocket as well as at, at the, for their property. The injustice is the taxation and redistribution of wealth. Spreading it would in no way reduce it. It would broaden it. It's just that simple. And you can never achieve a good by doing an evil and contributing with an evil. Um, I wanted to con uh, congratulate Doug, Dewey, and the other private voucher folks for, you know, for instance, in Georgia, where they created a program which gave 200 families the ability to leave the Atlanta public schools and created 7,300 uh, families who were advocates of vouchers because they didn't have enough money to give to them. Um, I think that the, uh, the separation of school and state guys have to get out of the academic sessions, go into the real world, go into the trenches, start fighting house to house, and you might see a couple of things. You know, until I see you out there, folks, um, all you have accomplished is doing something that most of the editorial writers in North Carolina thought was impossible, which is make me look like uh, the mainstream reformer. <laughs> um, uh, um, but what I wanted to specifically address was Joe Bass' point about taking the contact points off the bomb. 
Um, I think that the, uh, the separation of the school and state folks fundamentally do not understand the power of the, uh, the education establishment, uh, do not understand what happens if you drive a wedge between the black church and the, uh, and the, uh, um, the teachers' union, that the teachers' union cannot govern by themselves. They have to have a coalition. And so that uh, uh, the, the question is, if you take the black church out of the education establishment coalition, have them uh, massively move into the education uh, business because now poor children can afford to go to the schools that they start, um, how are they going to uh, rejoin the uh, coalition of the teachers' union, allow all of these regulations to be put on their schools, uh, and reelect these same folks who are doing that? I mean, you know, the position of school in the state that thinks that that's possible, and you really need to get into the trenches and, and go talk to some black ministers and ask them. You know, the fact that young black ministers across North Carolina are saying, yes, we understand that the black middle class is, is uh, totally tied or is substantially tied to a public sector. And the ACLU is organized in black churches through the April Randolph, and they're still saying, we're going to toss those guys overboard and go with black churches because 74% of black male fifth graders can't pass the minimal standards set by the state of North Carolina last year. So This is the end of side one. Side two is already queued up. Graders, I think that's really sad that the, that few of kids can, can perform and can read. But what does, what does anyone think that a voucher will do for those fifth graders when what I'm trying to say is there will be no increased choice as long as the providers are protected. There's, there's no accountability if I don't teach that fifth grader how to read and everybody else doesn't teach the fifth grader how to read. What are you going to do to me? Where is the choice? What are the kids going to choose from with the vouchers they have in their hands? Uh, I want to address this to the pro-voucher team. Uh, implicit in both your arguments was that we purists are a little politically naive. But I guess I have to throw the same thing back at you. I come from Vermont. And um, why are you naive enough to believe that this is an argument only about tuition vouchers? Uh, I'll explain that by saying the first political legislative argument we ever had about vouchers in Vermont, uh, within 48 hours, the woman who runs the House Ways and Means Committee jumped up and made it very plain, no tuition voucher without an accompanying transportation voucher. She was followed a day or so later with no tuition voucher plus transportation voucher without an accompanying book voucher. So why are you naive enough to think this will center only on tuition and not spin off in 14 different directions? Well, my answer is because I've sat at the table with dozens of groups and drafted voucher legislation. And uh, you know, Myron Lieberman says it's easy to get agreement on pie-in-the-sky objectives and plans that everybody loves. It's much more difficult to put together a coalition of something that's actually politically possible. And in the course of the give and take and the compromises, you end up with a voucher bill that, uh, in my experience, working with a lot of different groups, has never included specific vouchers for books or travel. I think in the short term, you're going to see all sorts of uh, uh, voucher bills that people in this room won't like and that I won't like. I think you've got to take the long-term view on this. We're in baby steps on the voucher movement, uh, little programs that only allow certain people, low-income minority parents, to participate. Only certain schools can participate. Over time, you've know, you got to believe that because of the efforts of people like us, it's going to gradually expand, become less restrictive, and come closer and closer to the kind of ideal legislation that you and I might support. Having just described your propensity for central planning, I will uh, address this question to you. Approximately three-quarters of the households in America now have no children in school of any sort. 
private school or public school. Uh, your voucher proposals inevitably would result in an increase in taxes if you were to embrace the 12% of students that go to private school. Uh, how would you uh, deal with convincing the three quarters of American households to support such a system? Well, voucher plans can easily be designed to provide tax cuts. I mean, look at, I mean, I've got a collection back there. I wrote it myself of about 20 different voucher bills. All of them are revenue neutral or actually reduced taxes. So that's a myth. And secondly, you know, this, my propensity for central planning, sir, compared to me, I think you're a statist. I mean, you're absolutely a statist. I don't think there's a more libertarian, anarcho-libertarian type person in this room, with the possible exception of Bumper Hornberger. And even then, I'm not so sure. Where is Bumper? Yeah, I, I don't know where this assumption that vouchers inevitably increase taxes comes from. Uh, but most, most voucher plans talk about a voucher value of 50% of the average per pupil cost of providing public education. If it costs the government 5200 bucks in California, for example, per child per year to provide a so-called education, and a voucher is set at a level of $2,600, every kid who leaves is saving the taxpayers from having to spend that much more. In Proposition 174, again, existing students qualified for the vouchers two years after implementation. By that time, the pool of savings built up from anticipated transfers far exceeded the cost of incorporating those existing students who wanted to apply. Almost every voucher plan I've seen ends up resulting in a dramatic savings to the taxpayers rather than a cost, and that should be one of its politically appealing elements. Thanks very much for your uh, participation, ladies and gentlemen. As we close the debate now, we will allow each side up to three minutes for a closing statement, and then uh, Marshall will, uh, will allow us to actually eat our lunch socially. And uh, so we'll start with the affirmative side. Uh, let me just make clear uh, again, as I tried to do in my opening remarks, that uh, Joe and David, um, if you could present me with a voucher that would be completely without strings, and not only that, guarantee that I would have a libertarian governor in my state for all eternity and a complete libertarian house in both sides for all eternity, I would still oppose it with equal fervor because it does nothing to uncouple the dependency of parents, families on the government. And that is the evil, not the regulations that come. Those are the symptoms. The evil here is what you're proposing is government funding of education. Now, you're saying that we think parents are too stupid I say you think that parents are too depraved to sacrifice and to pay for it themselves. By buying, by buying into the logic of state funding with vouchers, you participate in, in that particular form of, of uh, condescension. A few months ago, George Gilder wrote an article for the American Spectator exposing the bogus debate that was mentioned in one of the questions between Republicans and Democrats over welfare reform. He showed that uh, the two were arguing from the same side of the fence, but neither party was saying that just that welfare is bad, and so it should be scrapped, not fixed, not reduced, but only in if reduced, only in, in the direction of elimination. The article had a hilarious title parodying Bill Clinton, which was, end welfare, as we, end welfare reform as we know it. We need to end education reform as we know it, and escape the government funding paradigm, which vouchers fails to do manifestly. Our motto should be, the only reform is repeal. We no longer hear much talk, uh, by the way, about efforts to reform Jim Crow laws. Again, the chief problem with vouchers is that it in no way breaks 
breaks free of the government monopoly schooling paradigm, and we have to stop thinking about ways to trick the government into giving up power. I have completely deflated the argument that there are not other interim measures. Your, the whole strength, and having been unable to defend it vouchers in themselves, is that it's the only way to go. But I provided a laundry list of things we can be working on that I'm already working on. I've got 200 children in school, average income $15,000 in Washington, D.C., out of my private efforts. I'm just one guy. Okay, we must begin to feel and cultivate outrage at the awesome and arrogant usurpation of parental sovereignty that is government schooling. And yet, all that we do must be grounded in love, our love of truth, liberty, and our children's ability to learn truth and know liberty. Thank you. Uh, you know, it's, it's a little difficult to um, respond to arguments attributed to me that clearly mischaracterize um, the, the position I thought I expressed fairly clearly. My argument did not rest on the fact that the opposition side had no plan. And by the way, a call for more conferences, more alliances, more meetings, and hey, 200 kids here and maybe 10, 15,000 nationwide isn't too reassuring as an alternative. We're talking about tens of millions who need help soon. My argument did not rest on the fact that the other side had no plan, although I thought that was a defect. My argument rested on the fact that vouchers are the clearest step to move us towards privatization. If we believe in the separation of school and state, obviously we need to be part of the effort to restore the federal government to its constitutionally limited role. We obviously need to be part of uh, the effort to restore education to its traditionally independent role at the state and local level. But virtually every state constitution currently requires, as a matter of fundamental state constitutional law, that the state provide for the common schools. Uh, it, it is there. Now, those of you who are telling me, well, you know, go cold turkey, fine. I'm still waiting to hear how you propose to do it. There are tremendous constitutional and legal and political and institutional objectives to attaining that. We are on the verge of accomplishing something dramatic with vouchers. Uh, those of you who are opposing it, um, are really opposing the surest step we could take towards the separation of school and state. I invite you to reconsider. Thanks very much to all. I'm delighted that we have now come to some type of unity and we now all agree on which which direction we're going to take, and so now we shall march forward into our neighborhoods and communities and bring about uh, full separation. Uh, Marshall has a few words to say before we adjourn. Thank you. Yeah, well, uh, turned out John uh, Taylor Gatto really didn't offer me to exchange ties. Uh, I sort of um, um, swiped his tie, and he resented it and, and, and asked for his tie back, so, uh, so I gave it to him. Pardon? He did give me an airplane. I've been wearing it. I wasn't sure why, but I've been wearing it ever since he gave it to me, so now I will uh, not wear that anymore. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's got something to do with school, right? There are a lot of teachers around here to bug. Thank you, David Harmer. Thank you, Joe Bast. Thank you, Candace Allen. Thank you, Doug Dewey. And thank you, Rick Henderson. I think that all of them did a splendid job at their tasks. Would you please join me in a final appreciation? We hope you enjoyed this presentation. For more information about the Separation Alliance, please call or write us at 4578 North 1st, number 310, Fresno, California, 93726. Or phone at area code 209-292-1776. Or fax at 292-7582.
Also, you might like to visit our webpage at www.sepschool.org. Thank you.